I will praise you, O Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. My enemies turn back. They stumble and perish before you. For you have upheld my right and my cause. You have sat on your throne judging righteously. You have rebuked the nations and destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. Endless ruin has overtaken the enemy. You have uprooted their cities. Even the memory of them has perished. The Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will govern the peoples with justice. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name will trust in you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord enthroned in Zion. Proclaim among the nations what he has done. For he who avenges blood remembers. He does not ignore the cry of the afflicted. O Lord, see how my enemies persecute me. Have mercy and lift me up from the gates of death, that I may declare your praises in the gates of the daughter of Zion and there rejoice in your salvation. The nations have fallen into the pit they have dug. Their feet are caught in the net they have hidden. The Lord is known by his justice. The wicked are ensnared by the work of their hands. The wicked return to the grave, all the nations that forget God. But the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted ever perish. Arise, O Lord, let not man triumph. Let the nations be judged in your presence. Strike them with terror, O Lord. Let the nations know they are but men. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Tony. I feel as though someone sort of set up a barrier between you and me, lest you want to rush the stage or something. But uh, <laughs> There we go. Um, right, let's pray, shall we? Father, thank you for the Psalms. We pray that you would help us to benefit from using them, and especially that you would enable us to benefit from Psalm 9 this morning. Amen. Could you make sure you've got Psalm 9 open in front of you? It's on page 546 of the Church Bibles. I'm going to be jumping around in the psalm, and I think you'll find it a lot easier to follow what I'm saying if you have uh, the words in front of you. Uh, For those of you in the balcony, there should be piles of Bibles at the ends of the benches up there. Page 546. I'm sure it's self-evident, just a temporary uh, quick glance at the psalm, uh, that this is not a psalm that contains systematic teaching or instruction. 
Uh, indeed, it's addressed to various different people. For, for example, it starts by addressing God. I will praise you, O Lord, with all my heart. That's verse 1. But then if you go on to verse 11, you'll see that it's addressing people. Sing praises to the Lord, uh, enthroned in Zion. And if you go back to verse 7, there's a declaration to no one in particular. The Lord reigns forever. What unifies the psalm is that this comprises the reflections and response of the author to his experience and understanding of God. That's the the key thing that unifies the whole thing. And if you go up to the top of the psalm, you'll see in small print there the superscription, and it says it's a psalm of David. As those of you who were here last Sunday evening will remember, I pointed out that the Hebrew there could mean it's a psalm to David, a psalm for David, or a psalm by David. But it's clear that uh, it's used in other psalms which are blatantly by David, and so it's overwhelmingly probable that it means the same thing here. In other words, this is a psalm by King David, the great king of Israel, though whether he wrote it before he became king or afterwards, we don't know. Uh, While we're in the superscription, I should just mention that the earlier bit of it is of uncertain meaning. For the director of music, that could mean choir master, to the tune of the death of the son, that is a possible translation of the Hebrew, but it could mean something totally different, so I wouldn't base any profound theories on that particular bit of the text. It doesn't matter. What matters is what David wrote. So let's get on with it. Verse 1. I will praise you, O Lord, with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. It's worth spending a little bit of time on that because there's a lot of things worth reflecting on. First of all, do you note that David is declaring his fixed intention, his his unwaverable uh, intent to praise God. I will praise you, O Lord. I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and rejoice. I will sing praise to you. Now, David clearly engaged his emotions in praise. We know that from other psalms and, to a certain extent, from this psalm. But he understood one really important thing. At its heart, praise is a matter of an act of will. You see, God is praiseworthy, and he doesn't cease to be praiseworthy just because our mood changes and we no longer feel like praising him. And because God is praiseworthy, the Bible tells us that we should praise him. Indeed, David says that. I've already quoted it. Verse 11, sing praises to the Lord enthroned in Zion. So whether we feel like it or not, We should be praising God. Like like David, we should be saying, I will praise the Lord. That's that's point one. Point two is that uh, although praise may well include private praise, the Bible envisages praise as being preeminently a public act. Did you notice David says... I will tell all your wonders. I will sing praise 
He's intending to do this publicly. And of course, the writing of this psalm was doubtless part of that public praise. Of course, uh, one way we do that is what we're doing this morning. We sing praises to God. We've just been doing it. Uh, the, uh, the ancient Israelites did that. The early church did that. The church through all the ages has done that. And we need to do it as well. But that isn't all there is to it. The Bible envisages that praise will include declaring God's worth to those who don't know God. Go to the second half of verse 11. Proclaim among the nations what he has done. Tell those people who don't know about God how much he's worth. That's part of your praise of God. When the Bible talks about us praising God, it includes praising to people who won't actually share that praise. So when we talk to our family, when we talk to our friends, our acquaintances, about God's worth, about what he has done, we are participating in the praise of God. And what's the content of the praise? Well, second half of verse 1, I will tell of all your wonders. And second half of verse 2, I will sing praise to your name. At this stage, David is thinking quite generally uh, about praise. The, The term wonders there could refer to specific things that have happened in our lives, but generally when the Bible uses that term, it's referring to God's wonderful acts, his, 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 his wonderful acts for us uh, in creation, in redemption, in providing for his people, in protecting his people. And likewise, when it refers to praising God's name, it's thinking quite generally. The, wor- the uh, word name there is clearly a metonym. It's referring to God himself, and in particular, God's attributes that lead to his wonderful acts. What he's saying is effectively, I'll praise what you've done, and I'll praise who you are. Now, I know that some Christians are on occasions a little bit reluctant to praise God for what I might call the big picture. Uh, And I understand that. I know what's holding them back. What they feel is that somehow we ought to be having things to praise God for in, in, in our recent lives, and that somehow if we praise God for all these big picture things, it's a bit of a cop out. But but there is no need to worry about that. The Psalms show us we should be praising God for these big picture things. In fact, I think if you start praising God for things specific in your lives, you will soon find you move on to bigger picture things. Quite interesting, we were up in that little room up there before the service, and that's exactly what happened. I didn't comment on it at the time. But but that is what we would expect. And indeed, we see an example of it here with David. Because he starts with something personal and then moves on. Verse 3. My enemies turn back. They stumble and perish before you. For you have upheld my right and my cause. You have sat on your throne judging righteously. Uh, We don't know the specific circumstances which gave rise to that praise. Uh, All we know is what's written there. It's clear that God had intervened and had prevailed over people who were opposing David, and he gives thanks for that. Again, 
I'm aware that a number of Christians get a little bit uncomfortable about this idea of praying to God and thanking God for personal vindication. And they get even more uncomfortable if that vindication involves, as it frequently did with David, physical violence. But there is no need for that concern. We are called upon to place our affairs before God and seek his vindication where appropriate. I suspect one of the big reasons why people are concerned is that they think, well, hang on, aren't we all sinners? Don't we all do wrong before God? How can we pray saying, I'm right, vindicate me? The point's this, yeah, we are all sinners. Yeah, we are all in the wrong before God. But that doesn't mean we are absolutely never in the right. At least, it doesn't with me, I think. I hope it doesn't with you. And when we believe we are in the right in relation to something, then it's perfectly acceptable to say to God, 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 vindicate me in relation to this. Though I do suggest we should, when we're doing that, pray that God would search us and reveal to us if our belief in our own righteousness is actually wrong. Uh, You will find many examples of David doing just that in the Psalms. And the reason, of course, it's appropriate to go before God is because he is the person who says he will vindicate those in the right. Turn on to, actually, you just have to go up to the other side of the page, verse 12. For he who avenges blood remembers. He does not ignore the cry of the afflicted. God's the one to whom we should go when afflicted. But when we do that, there are two really important things we need to remember. And they are exemplified in David's prayer that immediately follows verse 12 that I've just quoted. Take a look at verses 13 and 14. O Lord, see how my enemies persecute me. Have mercy and lift me up from the gates of death, that I may declare your praises in the gates of the daughter of Zion, and there rejoice in your salvation. Two points. Point one, we must not presume on God. We must not go before God and demand vindication as of right. Reason? Because we are all sinners before God. We have no right to demand anything of God. So do you notice there that David says, have mercy? He's not demanding of God. He's saying to God, as an act of grace, Lord, please vindicate me in relation to this matter. Save me from those who persecute me. And we need to do likewise. The second point is that when God promises deliverance, he's not intending that we get his deliverance and then happily chug off our own way, serving ourselves. The purpose of God's deliverance, the purpose of God's salvation, is always that we should serve him. And in particular, in the context of this psalm, it's that we should praise him. And again, David recognises that. Have mercy on me and lift me up from the gates of death. Why? that I may declare your praises in the gates of the daughter of Zion. It's poetic imagery there. But what he's saying is, save me from those things that are oppressing me at the moment. Save me from this persecution so that I can then join your people 
in proclaiming your praises, in serving you. We do need to remember those two things. This is not for us, and we mustn't presume, on God. But if we do, then absolutely the Bible tells us time and again that it's perfectly appropriate to pray for God's vindication. And of course, when he vindicates us, when he does intervene on our behalf, like David, we should remember to thank him. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty good at praying not terribly good at noticing the response and then thanking God for it. And we should thank him no matter how he chooses to respond. In the case of David, very often God acted through human agency. Uh, We are going to be looking at the first book of Samuel in the autumn and we will see on, on a number of occasions God intervening to assist David through human agency sometimes through other agency, occasionally by miraculous means. The point is it doesn't matter. Because what we need to recognise, as David did, is that God is the one who is acting in all of those things. As he puts it, God has sat on his throne judging righteously, irrespective of the means by which he did so. But I said a moment ago that... Having thought about himself, David moves swiftly on to the big picture, and he does. Take a look at verse 5. You have rebuked the nations and destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. Endless ruin has overtaken the enemy. You have uprooted their cities. Even the memory of them has perished. David sees what has happened to him as merely an example of what's happening generally of what God is doing generally. And more than that, he sees this as happening because of who God is. Because he recognises that God is the sovereign judge. Just go on to the next verse, verse 7. The Lord reigns forever. He has established his throne for judgment. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will govern the peoples with justice. God's the sovereign judge. That's the nature of God. And David returns to his theme later on. Glance across the page, verse 15. The nations have fallen into the pit they have dug. Their feet are caught in the net they have hidden. The Lord is known by his justice. The wicked are ensnared by the work of their hands. That's quite profound. Let's just think about that for a moment. What that is saying is that God has so arranged the world that evil is self-defeating. That people who plan evil get it rebounding on them. And what it's saying is that God's justice is seen in precisely that ordering of the affairs of the world. So... Perhaps you could describe it as sort of divine schadenfreude. It's, it's, it's things happening to people which they wished on others. And we need to reflect on that. We need to reflect generally on God's justice, but specifically on that interesting, indeed tremendous fact. You may have noticed at the end of verse 16, there are two untranslated Hebrew words, hegeon and selah. Now, yet again, we're not absolutely sure what those mean. Uh, Hegeon 
in other contexts, appears to involve some form of meditation or perhaps in a musical context, a melody which, again, maybe implies room for thought. Salah is used uh, in, I think, 70 places in the Psalms. It's some kind of musical direction. It's basically saying, right, we've said this bit, now music. Either way, we don't really need to understand the detail of that. What's being said here is pause, think, reflect. God is the sovereign judge. He judges the world with righteousness. The Lord is known by his justice. The wicked are ensnared by the work of their hands. Think about it. David clearly did. Go back to verse 9. This is his conclusion. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name will trust in you, for you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. He says a similar thing towards the end. He sort of loops back a second time. Verse 17, the wicked return to the grave, all the nations that forget God, but the needy will not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the afflicted ever perish. You, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. That's his conclusion. Is it your conclusion? And I put it like that, Because I'm not sure it is the conclusion of a number of Christians. I think a number of Christians worry that it's not quite true. That bad things happen to God's people. God doesn't protect them from bad things. So is this just wrong? The clue is in the fact that If that was the problem, then David would be contradicting himself within a few verses. Because in this very psalm, he acknowledges that bad things happen to God's people. He who avenges blood remembers he doesn't ignore the cry of the afflicted. So there are afflicted. There are God's people who are afflicted. See how my enemies persecute me. David was persecuted. Again, when we're in 1 Samuel, we'll see that. We'll see how David was pursued and persecuted by Saul. And it didn't stop when he became king. He had a lot of troubles after he became king. And yet, that doesn't stop him saying, you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. In fact, it's interesting. Read again verse 9. The Lord is a refuge. Stop. Does it say, the Lord is a refuge, his people are never oppressed? Take a look. It doesn't say that. It says, the Lord is a refuge for the oppressed. David is actually not saying there won't be bad things happening. He's saying that God's in there. That God never forsakes people, no matter what he leads them through. Do you remember that famous verse, Romans 8, 28? Paul came to the same conclusion. For in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Yeah, even the bad things. God is right there working for our good in and through those things 
That's the point. That's why David, for all his troubles, was able to say, you, Lord, have never forsaken those who seek you. That, in the end, is the key point in this psalm. Before I finish, though, there's one other thing that's worth mentioning. The uh, language of this psalm is such that in a lot of places it's impossible to work out whether David is saying, one, certain things have happened in the past, two, certain things are happening in the present, three, they will happen in the future, or four, uh, certain things are uh, happen characteristically, perhaps invariably. It's not possible to work it out from the language used. Here's the key. It doesn't matter. They're all true. In the context of what David is saying, it's all true. I'll give you a few examples so that you understand what I'm saying. Go back to verse 3. My enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you, for you have upheld my right and my cause. The middle clause of that's actually future. What it in fact says is, my enemies turn back, present. They will stumble and will perish before you, future. For you have upheld my right and my cause, past. Now if David were here, someone who's of a scientific or perhaps loyally disposition, no names, might turn to him and say, now look, David, can we get this straight? Are you talking about the past? Are you talking about the present? And, or are you talking about the future? And David would doubtless answer, yes, I am. He's talking about all of those things. And then move on to verse 5. You have rebuked the nations and destroyed the wicked. You've blotted out their name forever and ever. Endless ruin has overtaken the enemy. That's all right, that's past. Except for this, it's quite likely it's a prophetic perfect. Uh, The prophets in the Old Testament and other people used to anticipate things in the future and in order to emphasise how certain those things were, They'd speak about them as if they were in the past. And if we treated this as a future, we might say to David, just a minute, David, can we get this straight? You've said that God has has judged. Well, you know, are you saying that this has happened? Because, yeah, a few of your enemies have been defeated, but the wicked are still there. And this business about them being forgotten seems a bit extreme. And he'd say, so what? Uh, My experience is is that God intervenes. He is intervening and he will intervene. This is what's going to happen. Uh, What are you complaining about? And then go on to verse 8. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will govern the peoples with justice. Future. So David, are you saying this is all for the future and not now? Or is it now? He just said, well, both. God has judged. God is judging. God will judge. Yes, final vindication is in the future, but this is how God acts. Actually, 
When Daniel quoted that earlier, I noticed you translated it into a present. And, and that was, that's no problem. Do you see the point? This is what God's like. This is how he has acted, how he will act, how he is acting, how he characteristically acts. That is David's understanding of God. And that's what enabled him at the end of the psalm to pray this, verse 19. Arise, O Lord, let not man triumph, let the nations be judged in your presence. Strike them with terror, O Lord, let the nations know they are but men. Do you notice David's moved from a prayer for vindication for himself to a prayer for vindication for God? And it's a prayer based on all that we've been thinking about that he knows God will answer. He can pray that having absolute confidence that God will do what he's prayed. Now, of course, David's God is our God. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. And so we can praise God for essentially the same things as David praised him for. We can pray to God in essentially the same way as David prayed. And for exactly the same reasons as David had confidence, we can have confidence we, we, we really should make sure we do. Amen.